Well, thank you very much for that, Matt. Um, I don't think we really need to do any formal introductions, but we might as well for the sake of uh, the sake of brevity. Uh, I will be the host. Uh, my name is Nate, lost in time and space. I'm kind of the, the head guy here at the Great Old Ones Gaming, but I certainly could not do this show alone, and I have two lovely co-hosts with me here today. I am the man from Lang, host of the Whisper and Darkness YouTube channel. And I'm Keeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And Vase, thank you very much for joining us while you're on vacation. I know that's a, that's a very special time for you in your life, so we appreciate you yes. taking the time to do that. And as well, we... this for the world, though. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also joined with, I'm sure you need no introduction, but I will uh, hopefully do it justice. We have senior card game designer Maxine Newman, as well as game designer uh, The Duke as well. And we want to uh, just take a quick moment to thank you both for joining us today. It's uh, lovely having you here, and just great to be here raising money for a great cause. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for doing this. Like, this is such a cool thing that you guys do. Yeah, this yeah. is super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've been uh, admittedly going down many rabbit holes uh <laughs> figuring out all the tech things but that's neither here nor there at this point um the, the tricky also, part is if think... this is if this is return to horrors without borders then what's next year going to be is like return to return to like <laughs> it, it'll be the box set the premium box set <laughs> <laughs> horrors without borders revise yeah there we go the point the point of no return the point of no return. <laughs> perfect all right i think that's oh. that's the name for next year or we could do something yeah. like third edition <laughs> i i'm sure the creative people in this community will figure out something but um <laughs> but i mean we're here for fun but we're also here to uh to prod the two of you um you know since you are the designers of the game that we have come here to celebrate and raise money for charity for um I know that, Vase, you have collected a, a slew of questions from patrons of the show, so why don't we start with those, and then we can go on to some questions from Chaz. Um, we definitely have, but uh, do you want to let people know where they can send in questions that are viewers that are watching? Oh, if you just type in exclamation Q into the chat and then uh, submit your question, I will be able to uh, select from all the questions that have been submitted so far today. Perfect. So the first question is from a friend of the show, Sub-Zero Go. So this one's kind of long, so <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me take a, a little breath here and find it, actually. So the Good Podcast recently stated that the state of the game heads in a very positive direction, that no matter what happens, the game is so well-loved by the community, it'll see, <laughs> oh my god. Excuse me. It'll see plays even after the line is eventually discontinued or as the thought awakens, whichever comes first. For <laughs> Sub-Zero Joe, he regards it as a work of art. But his question is regarding the community that has evolved around the game. One of the brightest and most positive gaming communities out there, and this event here is a, a show of that, um, even rallying for charities and, and whatnot. Um, if other game designers were to try and take tips from you, what valuable lessons have you learned about initiating or influencing the growth of a community within your game? And any particular lessons about its first reactions or the longevity of the game? Hmm. Well, so for one thing, 
I, I do want to say that, like, he's absolutely right. Like, the state of the game is fantastic right now. The community is absolutely wonderful. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can take credit for any of that. Like, I think that that's really that's all of you, like all of the players who have gotten together and done this and like the, the podcasts and the content creators who consistently like make videos and reviews and playthroughs and stuff for people to engage with. Like, I don't I don't know if it's right for me to like give advice on like how to curate that community, because I feel like I feel like you guys did that. I feel like you should be answering that question. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, but yeah, like this, this community is absolutely fantastic. Easily like the safest space I've ever felt in a, in a gaming, uh, like space. And, um, I do want to say like the future of the game is really bright. Like, um, and actually <laughs> maybe I'll take this time to introduce Duke to you since <laughs> that's relevant. Um, so, uh, Duke is a new hire, uh, well, relatively new, right? Like how, it's like six months ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I begged and pleaded to, to allow him to, uh, to, 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 to get him onto this team, um, because I really wanted him to work on Arkham. He really wanted to work on Arkham. So, uh, in the future, you will see more of him, I'm sure. Yeah, I I want to just add in, like, the community for this game is just such a wonderful thing to participate in and be part of. Um, it definitely is from everyone just chipping in and thinking about, like, bringing that positive spirit to the game. Um, even though the game makes you suffer and die <laughs> and cry over and over again uh, when you draw the autofail or whatever. Um, yeah, thank you all for being so great. Dude, you know you've been sacrificed multiple times to Shabnigurat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ending yeah. many campaigns. <laughs> this is not even my final form. <laughs> awesome. Great, great answers. Um, so we have another question from friend of the show, Solar J. And the question is, do you have a mechanic that either of you are particularly proud of? Oh, for sure. I mean... There's so many. There's definitely a lot. So I, I do this every time. Every time I always like talk about like the, the thing I can't talk about. But there's some stuff coming up after Edge of the Earth that I'm particularly proud of. Because um, I just went ham. But um, as, as far as like existing stuff, I think I'm really proud of how the Bless and Curse tokens came out. Um, you know, it's it's always worrisome when you go back to like a foundational game element and create something new that's supposed to like really alter like such a core facet of the game. And in some games, when they try to do that, it doesn't hit well. And it, it ends up like, you know, being a, a big sticking point for the community. And I'm sure that there are a bunch of people who don't like Blessing Curse Tokens, but I think overall they've gotten like a really healthy, positive reception. And I'm really excited to maybe, I don't know, explore them again at some point. Um, but uh, for now, it's, it's just self-contained to Ismith. And I, I, I think that like, I got a lot of people saying like, oh, I wish these were just in the core set. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Because that makes me feel like, um, it was, you know, it was a good design that people really enjoyed. So, 
Yeah, I mean, that has to be, like, one of the biggest compliments, I feel, because it means, like, the mechanic was so well designed that it feels sort of inherent to the game or sort of axiomatic to the way the game plays. Yeah, yeah, you want to, if you're adding a new feature like that, you want people to feel like, how did I ever play the game without this? Like, it's such a, it's such a natural fit. And so I'm really glad that that's how it came out. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and Mateo loves you for it. <laughs> well, uh, yes. I hate to interrupt, man from, but, uh, man from Lang's favorite investigator. <laughs> well, uh, I hate to interrupt, but uh, speaking of positive things that have uh -oh. gone down very well, uh, Asasani has donated fifty dollars to Doctors Without Borders. His message is: great cause, great entertainment. Many thanks to everyone involved. Uh, we also have oh. a $60 donation from Turbanismo. Um, Turbanismo is part of the Los Archivos de Arkham podcast, part of this uh, wonderful international community that has been built around this game. Uh, Turbanismo says, Hola, thanks for the amazing initiative once again, folks. Goog FTW exclamation point. <laughs> we, we also have another $50 donation from the entirety of Los Archivos de Arkham saying, great job making this possible. And we also have a $200 donation from Sub-Zero Joe. Sub-Zero Sub Joe says, Great effort by the Great Old Ones Gaming and everyone to put this event together. Events like this are the reason I believe Arkham Horror the Card Game is one of, if not the best, gaming communities. Lots of love from down under in Australia. Thank you so much, everyone. That puts us at over $1,600 out of our... Um, goal of $5,000 this evening. Keep it up, everyone. Let's push for that 2000 Matt, before we get back to it, since we're talking donations, um, does that mean we already hit the 300 goal for this segment? Because we're matching dollar for dollar the first 300 We have, yes. Segment. We have, yes. That's wow. right. The great old ones will be matching the first $300 of donations. So that effectively puts us at wow. 1960 so let's push for we, now. We got to push for the next uh, the next unlock that happens at twenty five hundred. Let's do it, everyone. Let's get the word out and let's go for twenty five hundred. Hell yeah! Amazing, um, Dukes. So uh, back to that question: Is there any any uh, mechanic that you that you like that you're proud of? I know you're fairly new to the, to this game, but uh, you did design a scenario, didn't you? For Arkham. Yeah. Yeah. When is I was there, an intern. Is there any mechanic maybe from? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, back when I was an intern and, uh, you know, Maxine was sort of laying out what I could take on as a project, and uh, I was able to take on the light in the fog scenario. Um, and I think that when I was designing that scenario, I was really inspired a lot by uh, a lot of the old survival horror games like Clock Tower or Haunting Ground. Clock Tower. Running away. Um, so that definitely inspired... Uh, you know, the idea of this this kind of unstoppable enemy who's stalking you through, you know, the lighthouse and then the tunnels. But I think if I had to say something that I was happiest with, or um, it wasn't a huge mechanical step, but the uh, nursemaids and the hatchlings mm. were something that I thought was, I really wanted to explore the idea of, okay, these are creatures who are a family. Um, and I wanted them to feel like they were family, even when you were playing it. Um, so I think, they're my favorite thing that uh, came out of that in a lot of ways. Um, how they yeah, sort of you made us feel so bad for for killing those things. <laughs> and if, if I remember correctly, you wrote the you wrote all of the art briefs for that scenario as well. So you wrote the art brief, the somewhat heart wrenching art brief of the of the nursemaid like cradling the 
um, in like the shallow waters. I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> I was so happy with how that turned out. And like, yeah. even the hatchling, um, I wanted it to be like, oh, I wanted it to be super cute, but also what's it eating? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> it, so, yeah. That's a tough question for Duke to answer though, because uh, Duke's been hard at work on a lot of stuff that he can't tell you about. That's fair, that's fair. <laughs> it's classified. Yes, it's classified, yes. I guess, we'll, I guess that just means we'll have to have you back on the show at some point so that we can discuss those after those products have been released. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally. So we we actually have another question from Solar J, who just asked Peter's question. Um, what was the most amusing playtest moment or feedback that you received that you can tell us about? And this might take a few moments for you to to think back on, but that's an interesting question. I I just I remember having lots of great moments all the way from like before the game ever came out. Back when we were playtesting The Gathering just over and over and over again, because it was the only scenario that existed at the time. And I remember we had so many fun moments. It was like one of the reasons why, like, I think upper management got so on board with this game so quickly is because every time we played it with them, they came out of it with like a hilarious story. Like the time that Nate uh, killed someone with medical texts or the time that I barricaded my boss into a room with the ghoul priest and just let him die. Like, just stuff like that, where you're just like, I can't believe this game can actually do that. And uh, so, yeah, those are just really memorable moments um, from, like, very, very early on. <laughs> uh, it's funny you mentioned medical techs killing people. I demoed the game <laughs> at Necronomicon back in 2019, and I had a group that wanted to do nothing more than try to kill each other with medical techs. <laughs> we had a... Nice. He had a player dynamite blast uh, everyone in the room with the ghoul priest and killed uh, <laughs> killed the Daisy and the Agnes in one action. <laughs> <laughs> that, that counts as two, right? <laughs> Did it at least kill the ghoul priest too? No. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, I think I'll pass on the question for now. All right, fair enough. So we had someone on the chat. Um, are you guys both familiar with uh, Delta Green, the role-playing yeah. game? Okay, cool. So maybe all of us, including the great old ones, can put in their two cents here. So someone asked, if we look into the future of the Arkham File setting, just as the investigators just go on with their lives, which ones will end up working for Delta Green? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love, oh, it's such a good question. Okay, so let's uh, see. Trish, without a doubt. Yeah, Trish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I feel like Trish, Roland, um, Mark Harrigan, maybe. I could see Tommy. I could see Tommy. You just get pulled um, into it. Like, whoa. Right, yeah, you're just like, um, you think you're working for one agency, and then all of a sudden... I got a tinfoil um, hat theory for you. I think Rex ends up being like a conspiracy theory nut job. So mm -hmm. he he ends up getting recruited through Phenomenex, which is like the the settings like conspiracy magazine. <laughs> I like that. And he gets sent as like a one. canary in the coal mine. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> That's the buddy comedy I want to see happen. Like, dang it, Rex, you did it again. <laughs> I'm, I'm wild. I got these theories. <laughs> 
Manfling, I know your answer is Father Mateo. For what? For joining Delta Green? Yeah, yeah. For anything. Well, <laughs> it's only fun bashing Mateo when you're around base, you know? <laughs> I think Mark Harrigan will go anywhere there's monsters to kill. I think uh, maybe Tony Morgan, too, for the same reason. Maybe Zoe for the same reason? <laughs> Maybe, but I feel like Delta Green wouldn't recruit someone who's, uh, uh, yeah, a little unstable, maybe. True. I, I don't know if that's even, like, necessarily the angle for that character, but, like, I don't know. It feels like you need to have some kind of military or uh, investigative background rather than just be a chef who's good at stabbing. And claims to talk to God. She's probably the operation yeah. more than the agent at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in chat said Wendy. <laughs> Wendy. What, there's, there's always been a lot of questions about, like, what does Wendy do when she grows up? And even, like, among the members of the Arkham story team, that's very much, like, in debate. Like, um, not that that's ever something that we're going to explore, but just, like, we always like to talk about it. And um, we always thought that uh, the uh, Wendy Adams Nazi hunter uh, was a fun angle. <laughs> she needs me them caps. Oh, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, so here's a question from patron of the show, uh, Northern Lights Over Arkham, JP. Thank you very much for the question. And he asks, uh, what's your favorite tarot card from the Return to the Circle Undone and why? In terms of art or mechanics? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think um I think in terms of art, I like the world tarot. It's just like the perfectly Arkham version of the world where it's just like, here's the earth and the moon, and then like it's very clearly being devoured. And also looks yeah, there you go. And also looks pretty insignificant in the face of whatever that thing is. Um yeah, the the world is my favorite. I think the moon is maybe my second favorite. Um, I just like planetary bodies. Like, I don't know what it is. And, um, but as far as mechanics, um, let's see. As far as mechanics, I like the ones that give you kind of long-term consequences. Like the one that, uh, the one that gives you extra experience or less experience if, re if it's reversed or the trauma one, like those ones are pretty cool. Cause they don't actually affect the game as you're playing them they just make you scared or like worried that like you're gonna lose something or that you might not gain the bonus that you set out to gain so i think those are cool i'm a big fan of the chariot i just like uh i like the kind of kineticism in it or how it's just in this got this beautiful feeling of motion even as you're looking at it that one's um, cool I don't know. They all have hurt me, though, so I don't know if I have a favorite <laughs> one mechanically. I've just been hurt too much. The High Priestess is really cool, too. Oh, my God, I forgot about the lovers. That one's... That one... That one gets me. That one's Haunting. really good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here, here's a question I'll throw out. Uh, is, there ever, is there a possibility of getting an art book for all the tarot cards? I believe we already did an art book with through Dark Horse, which I already packed, so I can't show it to you. Um, and I don't think the tarot cards are in there, or maybe some of them are, but 
yeah, there is an art book for Arkham. Buy it. It's really good. I don't think the tarot cards are in there, though. I could be wrong. I don't, I don't think they are. Yeah, I think it, it came good. out right before. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. You can find it at bookstores near you, like Barnes & Noble. Obligatory plug there. Yeah, along with the Aconite novels. It's <laughs> just like, do you have full <laughs> plug? Like... <laughs> Nate's been reading those Aconite novels, and he's been reviewing them, and they, they seem pretty pretty interesting. Lots of good ones. Yeah, yeah they're good. They're yeah, good. I think they're quite good. I liked Mast of Silver quite a bit. Yeah, that, that one one's was... probably my... Mm, that one's probably my favorite so far. I also like... Well, there's more coming down the pipeline that I really like. Um, I really liked the Devourer Below compilation. That one um, was really yeah, good, that one, yeah. That one, that one was awesome for me, because I was sitting there like... I created these characters like in a vacuum like years ago, like Lita Chandler. I wrote out a whole backstory for Lita Chandler that you never really explore in Night of the Zealot because um, I, it was just for fluff, right? Like it was just for internal use. You know what I mean? I never thought that we'd revisit it for any reason. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, Aconite is doing a, an, 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 a short story anthology and they want to explore the corset story because we're making a new corset. So what kind of stories can we tell? And I'm like, Lita Chandler, like, here, just, just take this. It's just like a whole outline of her life. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and the book does more than just, like, go into Lita. It goes into a bunch oh, God, of Arkham yeah. Files characters, which is really cool. Yeah, uh, Ruth Turner, who's my favorite of the Immordoth, like, cultists, has a whole chapter uh, about, like, her story and how she gets roped into the cult and stuff like that. And it's really great, really great. It's really great. And there's uh, there's some there's some uh, sweet uh, queer representation too. So. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Ruth has a girlfriend in that in that story. Indeed. Um, is there a possibility? Here's another random question for you. Speaking of the novels, is it a possibility that some of those characters get transferred into the games? Um, is it a possibility? Yes, it could happen. Um, is it like a de facto thing that we can easily do? Not necessarily. Um, so those characters are like owned by Aconite. So we would have to like work together with them to get that to happen. If it ever happened, we'd probably have to commission new art for them. So it, it would be a whole deal. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's definitely a possibility. It's something I've thought about. I think it'd be really cool. Can't, yeah. can't guarantee it'll ever happen, but it'd yeah, be neat. Unfortunate logistics, but it is what it is. That'd be really cool, though, because there's some really interesting characters. Um, I don't oh, yeah. know if you've read Wrath of Nakai, but that one features yes. uh, Alex Alessandro Zorzi, one of my personal favorite characters. I think now in the uh, in the Grand Arkham Files IP, it's, she's she's great. I um, think Alessandro would be like the number one like obvious choice. Right, she's a, for like an LCG card, I think so. I mean, just having that subtitle, the Acquisitionist, on her investigator <laughs> card is just, ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's see. So, so you guys um, have made some uh, partnerships for, for short stories and novels. Um, Maxine, you wrote a story, uh, Sub-Zero Joe said that he caught that you wrote a story for the Investigators of Arkham book. Which story did you write? I did not write a story for the Investigators of Arkham book. Hmm. I guess you were credited on there as part of one of the story writers. So he thought I was maybe you credited, did. 
so I was part of the story group, which is a group of oh. Arkham experts, I guess, who Accolade. just yeah, yeah, basically mm. just read through everything and like um, made comments on it, made edits, suggestions where where necessary, and uh, and like you know what I mean, um, that that kind of thing. I didn't write anything. I just uh. helped. I was IP police. <laughs> well, thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, there was, I guess, some confusion. Um, so we, we weren't sure. And, and when he brought that up, I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe she did write something. Um, so on the on the story and the art uh, for, for Arkham Files characters, they're so pulp-based. I mean, it just lends so well to comic books. Have you guys ever thought of maybe delving into comic books or making partnerships with the with a comic book publishing house i would love that i know you, you worked with dark force right for the uh um tarot thing you said right yeah so well the dark horse was for the art book um but yes we we've worked with uh we've worked with dark horse before um for the art book we're, we're also making an android art book um so like that is a possibility for the future, but it's definitely not something I can like confirm or deny right now. I think it'd be really cool, though. It'd be yeah. super cool. I would love <laughs> to see some of the scenarios that we play in comic book form. I think it'd be awesome. I and maybe that. take like someone's someone's real play experience and translate the actual game into into a comic book story. I think that would be really fun. Kind of an Easter egg, you know, one of the playtesters or developers. I think it'd be really fun. I would hope it would be the Forgotten Age. If it's going to be any campaign, it's got oh, to be yeah. the Forgotten Age. No, no idea. I'm just curious. Why do I say that? Yeah, I'm just Cause curious. Because it's, it's the best campaign. <laughs> it is. I agree. It's my favorite campaign. That's that's our bias here. We uh, we don't speak about Mateo, and we love the Forgotten Age. My favorite. <laughs> my favorite campaign is Redacted. Oh, Redacted. You well, can't. okay. Here's a, here's a question for Duke. Um, Manastrophic asks, what was your first experience with Arkham Horror, the card game, and what investigator did you first play? Uh, well, I was still um, coming out of grieving Netrunner in some ways, and I remember going into my local game store, and I saw just, I, I saw on the shelf, I was like, wait, there's an Arkham Horror card game? And the the person who was uh, manning the shop was just like, oh, yeah, that just came out. Um, and so I guess my tender, my tender young heart was like, okay, well, this will fill the void that Netrunner will leave behind. Um, and I took it back uh, to my apartment, and I played it with one of, my, one of my best friends. And I think my first character I picked was Daisy, actually. I was like, yeah. got to pick yeah. I mean, she knows her books and I, we totally, I think we just totally died, but, um, uh, it just kept me coming back for more. And speaking of coming back for more, let's see, we have a $40 donation from Comrade Sim. Comrade Sim says, great event, folks. Carry on. Thanks. All right. Let's see here. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Uh, let's see. Here's a question from, uh, Nicholas Corey. Is that how you pronounce that? <laughs> um, he, hey, Nick. 
He's asking, when will we get a dinosaur in the game? Which I'm assuming is a very serious question. <laughs> God damn it, Nick. <laughs> I will say, I will say, I've been playing a lot of Weird West Call of Cthulhu lately, and there is a precedent for it. I feel like if we were going to put a dinosaur in the game, it would have been in Machinations Through Time, right? It's not too late. Ready had time traveling and everything, so... I mean, what's your definition of dinosaur? Because Forgotten Age has serpent people. There you go. Yeah, and the winged serpents, which are yeah. basically dinosaurs, so yeah. Prehistoric, basically. Just play the Forgotten Age, Nick. Nick. Have you... Nick, have you played the Forgotten Age? Is Nick, that, have is, you played Clutches of Chaos? That's going to be the new, the new meme. We'll just have pictures of Nick, and we'll just say, have you played the Forgotten Age? <laughs> Do you have yeah, Forgotten Lake, Age? Lake Milko has a dinosaur. There you go. Yeah, God, Thanks, have you Mark. played the Forgotten Age? Like, ugh. Um, in all honesty, like, with Arkham, you never know what's going to happen. Like, every campaign, uh, I like to throw twists and turns and all kinds of weird stuff, so... Who knows? Maybe sometime we'll have a dinosaur in the game. But until then, uh, Nick can terrorize me with dinosaurs in his D&D campaign. So, you know. <laughs> oh, how's that going? Are you guys done with, uh, was it Rhyme of the Frostmaiden? Or? We, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden was like a year ago. Uh, Call of Cthulhu is what we were playing recently. Uh, we were playing Horror on the Orient Express. Uh, Express. 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 <laughs> I can't talk. I'm very tired. Um, with uh, Josh Parrish as our uh, uh, keeper, and we won. We did it. Nice. And we're going to be starting up D&D nice. next month. Very nice. That's a difficult yeah. campaign, too. Oh, yeah. It, I had six sanity left at the end. <laughs> out of oh, oh, sanity of, like, 87. <laughs> yeah, it's like once you get to that point where you, like, become mythos-hardened, it actually becomes pretty difficult to lose lots of sanity, so your character... Well, we, were, we were playing pulp version, mm -hmm. so... We were playing on easy mode. I don't know if I'd call oh, it wow. easy mode. Listen, I mean, okay, listen. we were playing on easier mode. How's that? <laughs> I take issue with that as a Pulp Cthulhu player. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. It is easier, quote unquote, because your characters yeah, don't die in one instance. Easier. <laughs> as long as you've got 30 luck, you can just spend it all and survive. You know? Very true. So. That's very true. Ah, oh, that's such a great mechanic. Uh, yeah. Uh, but speaking of mechanics and um, sort of the uh -oh. design process that goes on about the game, uh, JP asks, what is your favorite part of designing campaigns or scenarios? Oh. Hmm. That's a tough one. I would say there's two points in the process that I really, really enjoy. Um, the first is um, when the narrative is fully written even if it's a first draft and it's an early draft and it kind of sucks. When the narrative is fully written and I get to watch playtesters make choices that they don't really know what the outcome is going to be and maybe they're role-playing their characters or something, that's like the first time in the process I get to really see it start to come together. Um, where they'll be like, oh, I don't know. Like, what, what should we do here? And it's the first time I'm like watching them play like the players will instead of just mapping everything out and playing like a playtester. You know what I mean? Um, so that's really fun. And then also uh, at the very, very end, when 
all of the art is finished and all of the graphic design is finished and we're actually building the cards and we're like slapping everything together and it it's just this feeling of like everything coming together like I'm I'm being kind of redundant but like that's it just feels so like oh it's real now all the stuff that was in my head like 6 months ago now it's real um that's a great feeling and also like when when looking at like proofs from the factory it's like i can hold this in my hands it's great i would, I would imagine it's a very similar feeling when you first got your book in your hands too oh god yes yeah although that was even more i would say that was like the same feeling but times 10 because uh unlike arkham arkham's a huge group effort i mean like an enormous group effort um we have uh we have the developers we have our producer molly glover we have the art team graphic design um we have people on the production team over at asmodee we've got the people on the factory in china it's it's an enormous process with tons and tons of people but when i when i first held dark drifters in my hand i i wept like a fucking child sorry if i'm not allowed to curse i apologize um because it it was pretty much me it was me and and it was done and there it was and i could like read it and um that was like so thrilling to me yes <laughs> sorry oh no that's that's totally fine um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a little surprise here so i'm actually uh -huh. a secretary for my school's literary club and i proposed that we team up with the lgbt club at our school to read your book for our campus reads book so that that's happening what when uh it'll be classes start in two weeks so we're, it'll be like a campus thing that we'll be doing oh my so, god yeah wow thank you so much that's amazing it's also an thank excuse you. to for me to finally read the fuck <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, that's a thank you so much i'm like overwhelmed that's so cool <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i thought you know especially Aww. like the that age group you know, when you're trying to figure that kind of stuff out in your life can be really difficult. Yeah. So what uh, what 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 school high school, middle school, college, Co college. OK, also perfect. Yeah. I mean, I know perfect. I look like I'm 13, but no, I, I thought you were maybe like on staff or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is far too nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you so much. That's amazing. Yeah, That's yeah, so yeah. Cool. Uh, I'll be in touch with you more about it in in the future. But um, yeah, I hope you like it. Uh, I'm sure I will. Like I've read a couple chapters of it already, so I, I know I'm going to be at least enthused by it, to say the least. But uh, moving on to some other questions, we have a question from. Don't move. Don't move on uh, from mechanics. I got a mechanics question. Okay. So, um just a little insight into the design process for mechanics so i'm really curious the investigators of, of not the investigators of arkham but the investigator packs those mm -hmm. were all new investigators for the most part so when you were designing the new investigators or the design team do you generally start with the mechanic for those investigators and then build the investigator their story and all that around the mechanic or is it vice versa you come up with an idea for a character and then you build the mechanics around that um so it kind of differed depending on the character um there's there was a mix of all of that for uh for like harvey and um <clears throat> who is the other one that wasn't new uh 
Why am I blank? So we, I think it was just Harvey that wasn't new, right? No, Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Had, yeah, Jacqueline. Harvey, was... Harvey, oh, Jacqueline. And Jacqueline. Harvey and Jacqueline, those characters were already sort of ingrained in the Arkham IP. So when we decided that those were going to be the Seeker and the Mystic, uh, respectively, it was kind of like, okay, what, what are they good at? Let's just put their mechanics into the game for Harvey. Card draw made sense. There's also like a very basic seeker mechanic that we hadn't really like focused on with an investigator. And then for Jacqueline, it's just she's psychic. So chaos token probability manipulation makes sense. Um, but for the other three investigators, it was definitely the other way around. We wanted to create characters who felt very diverse and unique and like weren't just like rehashes of stereotypes or cliches or things that are already present in the roster because we have... 50 plus investigators in the IP. So we wanted to make sure that these characters felt really different. So for Nathaniel, the, uh, when we came up with the boxer, with um, Winifred, who was originally like the daredevil. So like basically having like a, a daredevil attitude, like approach to the game. And for Stella, like all of those were much more theme first and then mechanics. Um, except for maybe Stella. Stella, for a long time, I've wanted to make a survivor character who was like, um, got something good when they failed. And it just made perfect sense for it to be um, Stella because, like, as a postal worker, you're sort of like, um, you know, you have this, uh, this idea that you have to constantly like move forward and like keep going, neither rain nor snow, right? So it just kind of made sense. <laughs> But like Nathaniel wrote himself, right? You punch things, <laughs> and then they die. <laughs> it sounds so simple when you say it, but coming up with the idea of events being a part of it and the boxing gloves, like it's it all works so well. You know, it's looking looking at it from the outside in, it just seems like a complex design. You know, uh, at least the innovation of it. You know, but that, I think that's yeah. what makes Arkham so unique and the part of the big appeal for Arkham is the wide variety of investigators and how different they each are and how unique in their mechanics and their mechanics just like really tell their story. It's done so well. I just Thank can't you. compliment it enough. Thank you. Yeah, for, for like Nathaniel and for Lily uh, as well, it would have been really simple, I think, to just have an ability that's like, oh, when you attack unarmed, like when you attack uh, without using a weapon or something, you just do bonus damage. Um, but the problem is, and like, if it was a board game, that would be perfectly fine. Um, but as a card game, you always want to encourage people to draw and play cards because that's, that's the mechanic. If their ability was that they punch hard and that's it, then you're as powerful at the start of the game as you are at the end of the game. There's no ramp up. There's no why draw cards, why play cards. You can just punch things. So we wanted to build a character who felt like they weren't fighting with weapons because they were punching things um and the easiest way to do that was through events and then for lily um i wanted to focus on the idea that like a martial artist could have weapons that are melee focused or just not guns right so you you got the dragon pole you've got the butterfly swords uh and of course you can also just punch a lot and you're kind of like a monk from D, &D with like a flurry of blows like whap, whap, whap. And like each punch only does one damage, but you can like rapid fire, you know? 
That's and, yeah. Uh, speaking of rapid fire, we have uh, the donations uh -oh. are coming in rapidly. Oh, uh, Gorfax, uh, who runs the Arkham Horror um, Living Card Game subreddit, has donated forty dollars to Doctors Without Borders. He says. Thanks to all of the content creators and community members that come together for great causes like this. Forever grateful for the friends, experiences, and horrors over the last six years. Thank you so much, Gorefax. So we recently finished up a, a massive game of the blob, and there was a question that popped up while we were playing uh, from... Uh -huh. I'm going to butcher that, so I'm not even going to pronounce their username, but they will be on screen so everyone can see it. But they ask, um, was there anything deemed too silly to put on the reality <laughs> acid effects? Oh, my God, yes. We probably narrowed it down by about half. Um, I think there were originally, like, at least twice as many. And we cut out a bunch for different reasons. We cut out some that we actually playtested and turned out to be really inconvenient. Um, we play, we cut out any that, uh, might be awkward for someone with a disability or something. Um, we cut out, oh gosh, we cut out some that were only jokes and had no mechanical effects. Um, what else? Yeah. I mean, we, we made so many cuts. I don't even remember most of them anymore. Um, like there was, there was one where it was like, um it devours your uh what was it it devours your chair and you have to stand for the rest of the game and we cut that one out because we were like if i'm at gen con and i've been walking around for like seven hours and my feet really hurt i want to sit like please don't if you make me stand i will just fail like it's not gonna happen um that that kind of thing so like yeah we cut out a bunch of jokes we cut out wasn't there one? Oh, maybe we kept that one in. Did we keep in the one where it devours your house? I, I don't, don't remember if we kept that or not. Mm. Electricity. I don't remember getting the house at, ever. That uh, I, when there I play is it. an effect that devours the card your house. Yes. Okay. Yes. That, <laughs> yeah. that one. That one. Um, we almost cut that one. I kept it in because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> you know, I don't. You should have ever drawn that the IRS. Don't pay any taxes this year. <laughs> There was one, I don't remember what it actually devoured, but there was one that was supposed to be like, if it if you draw two auto fails, which is physically impossible, because there's only one auto fail in the bag, it did something that was extremely silly. And it was just there as a joke. And then during a playtest, it actually happened because uh, uh, someone was playing Daisy and they had the Necronomicon out. Um, and they were like, oh, it counts as an auto fail. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it ate Arkham Horror, the card game. That's what it was. Yeah, people in chat are reminding me. <laughs> oh, that must have been a fun scenario to design. There was oh, there I I do remember one. There was one in playtesting that it devours the event organizer, and if it devours the event organizer, I was gonna go like ah, 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 and then like <laughs> run out of the room like I'm being devoured. <laughs> And then they have to play the rest of the event without me. <laughs> oh my god. That would happen to Nathan. Nathan would go through the trouble of like yeah. putting an event together and then he'd get devoured. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> that one that one got cut for obvious reasons. <laughs> 
So I've got a personal question for you. So there's been a lot of hubbub about investigator starter decks in general, but you know, while we've seen the precedent for player cards to come out with without an associated story behind them, is it possible that there's room for associated stories without investigators? So maybe not something to the effect of like a full campaign like Edge of the Earth, but maybe somewhere in between. I mean, that's kind of what like our standalone scenarios are, right? Like, well, more like a more like a mini campaign. Like, say, if you were to take like half of Dream Eaters and release that as its own thing, or something like that. Right. Well, with the new packaging style, like it used to be that the rule of thumb was we always have to bundle player cards with scenario cards. Now it's almost the opposite, where it's like we don't want to bundle scenario cards with player cards. We want them to be separate. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there, that is always a possibility. That being said, uh, I am only human and I can only produce a certain amount of content per year or I will jump off a cliff. You say that as so, you spawn a third tentacle coming into your back or something right, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what the, uh, what the future holds. I, I want to keep making Arkham content until my fingers bleed. So we'll see. <laughs> I don't think and now you can help me. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> want to be the best boy. Want to help. Throw treats into Duke's mouth when he designs cards. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> I have a, a question about uh, the design. Uh, is it uh, challenging to balance the uh, when you're designing a scenario? Is it challenging to balance the sort of the the clear objectives that investigators need to achieve with the the randomness? Uh, we've seen quite a few scenarios, like uh, ones that come to mind, like before the Black Throne or um, Devil Reef and stuff like that, where you've sort of got a lot of different random things going on is that is that uh what sort of challenge is that uh, like yeah so if you if you take a sliding scale like imagine a sliding scale that goes between scripted and random right um if if it was fully scripted right like fully 100% scripted what cards you have what order they come out in what order all of the encounter cards come out in that sort of thing then we could curate it to feel really, really well balanced and really well, like, um, like well scripted, right? Like everything happens in exactly the right order. And the downside to that is there's not a lot of replayability, right? Once you play it, you've experienced it. That's it. You move on. And the same, you see the same thing in video games, right? Um, and on the other hand, is like completely random. Everything's completely random. You never know what's going to happen. Highly replayable, because every time you play, it's going to be totally different. But also, like, maybe so random that it almost feels like a moot point. Like, why am I even playing this, right? Um, we ideally want our scenarios to fall somewhere in the middle. Um, there's like a sweet spot where it feels like it's a little scripted, but it's random enough that every time you play it, those scripted events happen a little differently. Um, and then some scenarios can fall a little bit more in the random side. Some are a bit more scripted and so on and so forth. So there are definitely some scenarios that are more random, some scenarios that are a lot more scripted. Um, like I would say like something like um, 
uh, what's a good example? Um, something like the secret name or uh, the <clears throat> Devil uh, Reef. <clears throat> yeah, Devil Reef. Well, like, but even Devil Reef. Devil Reef has like the various islands, and the islands can play out differently. And I think there's even one island you don't use, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But like some some scenarios, it's like actually the gathering, right? That is probably the most scripted scenario in the entire game. The gathering. You're always gonna go. You're always gonna leave the study, go to the hallway, go to the attic, go to the cellar, go to the parlor, fight the ghoul priest, or run away. That's the end point. Is the only thing that's unscripted. Um, but then there are some scenarios that are like, who knows what's gonna happen? It's like so random. So. Um, I think the healthy mix of randomness and scripted events is a good thing. And we don't all, we don't want every single scenario to fall in that exact sweet spot. We want it to fall in like a range. Um, that way, if you're a player who likes randomness, you can, you have got those scenarios to keep replaying. Like Depths of Yoth is like a perfect example of a very random, very highly replayable scenario. Um, and if you're not, then you've got those really heavily scripted scenarios that you can play through. Is that something that comes out as you're designing or is it something you're looking at before when you sit down to design the scenario? Is it, does it come out naturally or is it you sit down and say, okay, I think this one, we have specific story points we need to hit. So this one's going to perhaps land on the, the less random side versus one that is a little more open-ended and you can let the give it a little more replayability yeah i would say it's a little bit of both like depending on the scenario like there's there are definitely some scenarios where we go into it thinking like yeah this is definitely going to be one of the more random scenarios and we're okay with that or yeah this is definitely going to be one of the more scripted scenarios and then there are other scenarios where we just design what makes sense at the time and wherever it falls on that scale is just where it is and if it's too far in one direction, we'll maybe take action to peel it back a little bit and bring it closer to that center. Um, but most times, most times we just do what makes sense for the story, and it just plays out the way it plays out. Um, for Before the Black Throne, for example, since you brought that one up, um, that was one I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be super-duper random. Um, but the way that the Cosmos deck played out and the way that I wanted the mechanics to work, it ended up kind of being that way. And I was content with that. Um, whereas for some scenarios, it's like, no, nah, it pretty much has to play out like this in order for the story to make sense. And, and uh, just, like, okay. no, go on. just one other question as uh, any idea when we'll be getting a new FAQ? That is a very, very good question. I don't know. Excellent question. <laughs> I, we, I've been hard at work collecting lots of questions. Um, it, part of the, the new package style is instead of getting an entire cycle's worth of FAQ content, like slowly over the course of half a year, we got them all immediately. <laughs> right? So it's been a lot to go through. Well, you know how the reviewers feel now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. Sort of just an awkward side effect of things. And also like I've I've just been like so busy. <laughs> that sounds like a cop-out answer. But the truth is, um, I'm hoping to have it vaguely soon within the next couple months, but I, I can't guarantee and I, I can't set a date. 
soon I, registered yeah. trademark soon when it's ready when it's ready that's that's the classic it. chef answer when it's done yeah that's that's I mean, when it's done i wish i had a better answer for you but that's the answer i have well, you know, like 85 of those emails are from Man From Lang himself. He's just emailing you rules questions. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Max, Maxine is, is great. Whenever I have a question, I, I email her and she gets back to me within a matter of hours. So I, I try. My my questions are always answered. I have uh, no questions whatsoever. Well, that's 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 not the norm. <laughs> well, it's, it's just <laughs> nice when you're making videos and then... I, I'm working on a script and I have a question. I'm like, I better ask this just in <laughs> case, because otherwise I'm going to get called out in the comments by. <laughs> so here's a question from chat. How do you feel about people using blank cards for void or swarming enemies? I know that this has been something that's been discussed on other podcasts and you generally feel, I think, I, I think there's a, tweet that Matastrophic has saved and he's posted in our uh, Discord several <laughs> times about uh, you, you Maxine, saying something along the lines of don't gatekeep yourself. Yeah. If that's the way you want to play, then that's the way you want to yeah. play. I agree. Like, wholeheartedly, if that's what you want to do, do it. I don't feel like that's bad or cheating or anything like that. In fact, I think it's pretty cool. I especially like the, um, the, the, the empty space slash swarming cards that, um, uh, that Mythos Busters made and like had made distributed. I even have a pack. I haven't used them because I don't get to ever play Arkham Horror the card game, but they're really cool. And I'm totally fine with everyone. If you want to use them, go for it. Um, does it make things easier? Sure. Because now you're not losing cards from your deck. Is there an element of... Um, is there something lost because of that? Eh, that's debatable. I think maybe, but like... Only really slightly, honestly. Um, especially the swarm cards. I think like the I've never had more than like eight swarm cards in play at the same time. So just don't see it as being like a huge deal one way or the other. Empty space. That's maybe a different story. Sometimes you get like a whole bunch out there. Now you're going to get like an angry email from multiple people. Yeah, in the I've, I've had 17 I've swarm had enemies. Swarm cards. My entire deck. Yeah, I mean, it can happen, of course. <laughs> we feel yeah, your no. pain but basically <laughs> they are the way they are right now as a limitation of the medium that's it if it was a digital game I would have just made them be cards you know what I mean I've never really understood yeah. why people dislike that mechanic I always feel like it's eh, it's no different than it taking cards off the bottom of my deck like I wasn't going to see them anyway right yeah well it's kind of like I think it, the time is it's frustrating is when you build a deck that centers around a couple cards and then those cards end up being, you know, in empty space or in swarm cards. And then when that happens, it's just like, well, yeah, don't build a deck around two cards. Maybe think about that, you know, like, because that can happen. Oh, uh, okay. And done with, like, just get discarded off the top of your deck. So here's a hot topic question for you. Is 45 the new 30? Is 45 the new 30? As a Netrunner player, yes. What about you, Duke? Do you think, what do you think about... Uh, are you a uh, make the smallest deck as humanly so I can find the pieces I need as fast as humanly possible, or do you build more of a generalist? Oh, I thought you were asking me how to reckon with my aging body. 
<laughs> Amazing. Uh, no, thirty all the way for me. Sorry. Just... <laughs> how about <sighs> how about um, underworld support forced learning? There you go. Forty card Highlander. That'd be cool. <laughs> you know, I make like that cool. <laughs> we. Had, I posed a challenge to the Twitch chat the other day about is it possible to make a bad Mandy deck? And out of the woodwork came a underworld support versatile Mandy deck. <laughs> Running one segment of Onyx. Nice. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Maxine, you said you never really get to play Arkham. How about you, Duke? Do you ever get to play? Have you played your own scenario and said, why am I so evil? I don't want to kill that baby. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, did a full pacifist run of Light in the Fog and was like, let's respect them in their home and just take what we need and leave. And that didn't go very well because then they killed us. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I play pretty regularly uh, for different reasons. So it's it's definitely the game that hits my table the most. But uh, there are so many. Yeah, I I just I've got a regular campaign that I play with the original group that I used to play back in Chicago. Um, so I make a, a pilgrimage back there, and we continue our campaign. But yeah. Oh, what when player you, count do you, you mostly decide... play at? Yeah, that was my question. Um, well, my my original group, uh, we were three. We were a three-player group. Um, but you know, I've played the campaigns through like two-player with my boyfriend or four-player with more. Um, so all over the all over the board. Oh, and what uh, what player count do you find the most enjoyable? Oh, gosh. I mean, like, I love playing a four-player game if we're, like, we're going to sit down and we're going to ha have the whole evening for this. Um, Two-player is, like, you know, a slim number as well. Like, you can finish a game a lot faster on two-player. Um, three, you kind of get a good mix of, like, the extra challenge that you'd get in four, but also it, it takes a little bit less time. So, I don't know. My I, We've kept our, our old group at three players, and that's been cool. I see there was a... There was a lack of mentioning solo play, which is a very oh. hot topic for us. So, <laughs> well, I will say that if you like, yeah, solo is 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 a higher calling. Um, you you know what you're getting into when you're playing solo play, and I have the utmost respect for you if you play solo. Um, I'm not good at solo play, but I I think it's really amazing when you can do pull off a full solo run of a full campaign. It's true. Vase, have we had a campaign go to completion yet out of like the six or seven that we've played so far in stream? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's funny. We, we got three horribly. Yeah. <laughs> For the end. Solo, solo is the true test of a scenario's design. Yeah. I feel. Do you? Like you play it with two people, you play it with three people, you play it with four people. Then you play it with solo and everything breaks. <laughs> Painful. So I would assume I would assume you guys don't really design around solo players as often, just sort of given the nature of the game, like more people uh, probably play multiplayer and that's what you would design around. I would say, well, first of all, you'd be surprised how many people play solo. Um I think by my estimation, it's over a quarter, close to a third of players. 
Um, wow. But I wouldn't. Yeah, I would agree. I don't. I don't think we design for any particular player count. I think we just design the scenario the way it makes sense, and then test it at different player counts and make adjustments from there. If like solo is not working for whatever reason, we'll make it scale better. If four players not working for whatever reason, we'll make it scale, you know, the other way. And we just try to make it usually if it works really, really, really perfectly for two to three, it's probably fine for one and four. It's only really ever an issue when the scenario only works for three or four player. And then and then you play it solo and you're like, oh, never mind. The center is not working. Have you ever like scrapped ideas because of something like that where it's like? I really, you know, you've been designing this scenario for X amount of time, and then it's like, ugh, we just can't get it to work in lower player counts or higher player counts. It depends. Some Usually what we'll do, we usually don't scrap anything. Usually we'll just try to include some balancing mechanics to make it so that, like, yes, this scenario is going to be harder in solo, or this scenario is going to be harder in four-player. Uh, and that's just okay, because... If there's just a range of difficulty based on players, we're fine with that. It's only if it's like extreme, you know, like it's it's at the extreme end. And there have maybe been a couple scenarios where they probably were on the extreme end and we should have taken more action, but we didn't. Um, but usually it's just like a matter of we'll just add a balancing mechanic to make it not as as ridiculous in solo. You know what I mean? Without scrapping anything, because going back to the drawing board is usually very bad in this uh, process. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that'd be just like a lost, you know, lost chunk of development time. We've done it before. Really, the big issue with going back to the drawing board in game design is by then you've probably commissioned art already because we commission art really early in the process. It's like one of the first things we do. So when we go back to the drawing board, we're actually only going like partially back to the drawing board we're still like now we're in the confines of this art that is already being sketched out so okay. it's kind of like okay we can't like change direction completely it's the um, it's the drawed board not the drawing board yeah like we, <laughs> we, we have about maybe a month or so maybe a little bit longer depending on where we are in the process in which we have like full wiggle room and we can do whatever and we can scrap things and come back to things um, but we're we're pretty much on rails for most of the design process. We've we've got to hit our deadlines, otherwise, you guys don't get a game in time, and then then everyone's mad at me. So. <laughs> uh, Walker of Tales asked in the chat, which scenario was the most onerous? Is that how you say that? Nate? Onerous. Onerous. Onerous to get to print. Oh gosh. Um. Kind of, there have been some scenarios that really were difficult to design, but off the top of my head, I'm having trouble remembering. Um, I remember, uh, uh, what's the one? The fourth scenario in the Forgotten Age, the really hard one. Oh, oh, um, boundary. boundary? Yeah, the one with all yeah. those ancient cities. Yeah, that was probably boundary. one of the toughest ones to play test. We just, it, it, it kept going back, like back and forth, like a seesaw in terms of difficulty. We just could not get it to that middle point. We just kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I remember by the end of it being 
rather frustrated and finally just being like, okay, you know what? If it's going to keep seesawing back and forth, I would rather it be hard than too easy. And that's part of why it is so difficult. And thankfully, when we when we went back and, and revisited it in um, Return to Forgotten Age, I think we managed to finally get a nice middle ground territory. Um, but until then, I remember it being so difficult. Um, difficult to balance, I mean. Um, yeah, Nate and I love that scenario. We we died. No, did we? I died and you, you succeeded, right, Nate? It was uh, a really close one. Yeah, it was really close. I've always liked that scenario. I don't I don't I, understand the yeah, community's beef with that one. No, well, I think time has like, been more kind to it. From from a from a narrative perspective, it's one of my favorites. I really love the locations. I love I, I remember also one of the reasons why that scenario took so long to design was I did so much research into into uh, Tenochtitlan and Mexico City and like trying to map it out even like, okay, you know, if Lake Xochimilco is over here, then what would be there back in like the, you know, um, hundreds of years ago, you know what I mean? Um, and I remember like really taking a lot of time to like get the locations to, uh, the, like writing the art briefs for that was like so difficult. Um, and yes, I know how to pronounce it because I did all the research. <laughs> someone in chat was saying, I'm glad to hear someone who knows how to pronounce it. Um, so anyway, like, um, yeah, that was probably one of the toughest scenarios to design. I think um, the other one that was really tough was the search for Kadath. Not because it was hard to develop, like playtesting it actually went rather smoothly, but it had so much story text like more story text in that scenario than actually there's one scenario with more story text and that's fatal mirage fatal mirage has the most story text i think in any uh in by far in in any um arkham scenario and those so those two scenarios were so huge in scale it was just like it took so long to write oof oof Oof, I wish oof, I had. Doc. I don't even have that on the soundboard. What am I doing with my life? Here? Oh, my you got. You also got to get the monkey karate chop sound that she did earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using that for every time I play a monk now in D and D. Oh yeah, Machinations, Machinations Through Time has a lot of text too. Although that one, uh, a lot of the credit for that one goes to Jeremy. Jeremy uh, was the lead designer on Machinations, okay. and um, to his credit, every time I threw him a curveball when he was developing that scenario, he took it with stride and just went with it. Because there were, there were so many times where I was like, you know what would be really cool? If it was this. And I would describe something that was such a hassle to develop. And he would just go, yep, that, that's cool. I'll do it. And then he would do it. And I'd be like, why do you put up with me? <laughs> <laughs> So here's a question from chat, uh, sort of on the reverse or other end of that coin is, uh, what scenario was the easiest to come up with? Which mm. came closest to got it in one. Um, hmm. That's a tough one. Uh, there's definitely been a few where I remember my first draft. It's very, very unusual that my first draft is fun. Like, generally speaking, and I feel bad for my playtesters, and many of them are probably listening right now, 
because they play the bad versions of every scenario so that you don't have to. Like, that's how playtesting works. And so it's pretty rare for a first draft of a scenario to just work or be good or even, like, be remotely fun. They're usually really frustrating, really hard or really easy, kind of broken, and they don't have story text, so they're really kind of rote. Because, um, you know, Arkham's nothing without the narrative. Um, so thank you to my playtesters for putting up with that. Um, but there have been a few scenarios in the past where, like, the first draft were like, wow, that actually worked pretty well. Um, I think uh, the one that comes to mind is the... Um, uh, which one is it? Uh, Threads of Fate. And I remember being like so surprised by that because I remember Threads of Fate. I was sitting there like, this is so much different paths and different routes that it's going to be a nightmare to balance it all. And it ended up not being as much of a nightmare because um, I somewhat cleverly mapped out the different routes to be kind of equal. Like this one spawns this enemy. This one spawns this enemy. The two enemies are roughly similar in stats. This one spawns a night gaunt, also roughly similar in stats. Like this one spawns a location. It's got this many clues and then takes this many actions to deal with. Whatever, whatever. Um, and the first time we played it, it just kind of worked, and we were like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> like that's that was great. That's interesting because that yeah. scenario has so many moving parts to it. You'd think, right? That it would... Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised. I usually am surprised when it when a scenario just clicks. Um, also, like, even the Midnight Masks back in the day, I think that's the scenario I spent the least amount of time developing in the core set. I spent the vast, vast majority of, like, 80% of my development time went into the Gathering. And then maybe, like, barely 5% into the Midnight Masks, which might be surprising to people because they're like, that's the scenario that where everything really clicks, and they see the full scope of the game and how it can work with like the non-binary win conditions and the story sort of playing out um, organically as you play. But uh, in all honesty, the Midnight Masks is, is kind of just a playground. So all it entailed was make a bunch of locations that are fun, make a bunch of enemies that are fun. Done. That was it. Like, may it put, a, put a value on the act card that makes it so that you can spawn an enemy by doing by spending this many clues and then uh the only twist that we really added was the the masked hunter which was added like a little bit after the fact um just as a time pressure element and uh the uh putting him actually on the back of the agenda instead of as a separate card was like the the thing that tied it all together and made it really memorable. But other than that, as far as design goes, it's pretty simple. Like it's 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 the it's the one all the way in the random end, right? It's not scripted. <laughs> well, here's a question from chat for Duke. Um, sort of on the same line. What's been the biggest challenge working on Arkham Horror for you so far? <laughs> and is Maxine throwing you any curveballs? <laughs> oh, all the time. It's constantly curveballs. <laughs> Just never Never any uh, straight balls. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? Right. <laughs> that didn't sound right. Uh, unsurprising. Yeah. Um, honestly, I mean, I think the most 
I think the way I would probably want to answer that question is like the biggest challenge is how much uh, how humbled I am by the really cool community and by what Maxine has already built and what the whole team behind Arkham has already built in that um, I'm constantly thinking, oh, this is like my favorite game and I do not want to do any disservice. Like it's, uh, I just want to bring my best to the game. So I think it's kind of like in my own head where I'm like, oh, I just want to do right uh, by this game constantly. Yeah, I can imagine uh, that's tough no. where you're like, you're sort of putting pressure on yourself without really like anyone else doing that to you. But, you know, I think that says a lot about one's character. You know, when you take on and shoulder that responsibility. Yeah, and I mean, it's just such a privilege, too. Like, yeah, I keep pinching myself. Am I in that one uh, <laughs> campaign of the Dream Eaters? <laughs> so. Now, Duke has been really great to work with. I think probably the, the toughest part for Duke, if I may speak for him, has been he's sort of joined in the middle of a project. Um, so playing catch up for a little bit, right? And um, transitioning onto this team, uh, it, there's always, there's always going to be, uh, it's always going to be easier if you're on a project from the start and you get to see it like come to fruition over time rather than being like kind of added in like halfway through. Um, but to Duke's credit, uh, he came on to the team with such an appetite for working on the game that, I think uh, just kind of hit the ground running. Um, and it reminds me a lot of when I joined the Lord of the Rings team. So I remember joining the, Rings, the Lord of the Rings team in the middle of a project and just being like, let me help, let me help, let me, let, me do, let me do this, let me do this, can I do this? What if I did this? What if we did easy mode? You know what I mean? Like we, we just added, I, I just came to, and I remember like everyone being kind of like, um, like okay, slow down, slow down. You're just working on this right now, okay? Okay, slow down. And um, and I just remember being like, like, no, I want to work on everything. Please, can I work on everything? Can I work on Netrunner too? Can I work on Civilization? Can I work on, you know what I mean? Like, um, and uh, so uh, I guess what I'm saying is, Duke, you remind me of me, <laughs> like but in a good way, in a very good way. No, no, yeah, for sure. <laughs> And speaking of really good things, uh, we have some news here. Krabby Terror Eight, who we'll be seeing in uh, in a little while here, has donated two hundred dollars to Doctors Without Borders. And also, Redbeard the Ninja has very stealthily decided to uh, ask a question with their donation of $50. <laughs> their question is, how do you decide what to include in the Mythos deck between including, between including new mechanics or reusing older sets? That's their question. You do with it as you will. Either way, thank you, Redbeard. That's, so that's tough. Um, there's some effects that are pretty, I would say, like, pretty standard that we like to reuse because they work. Um, I would say, like, test agility and take damage for each point you fail by. Test willpower and take horror for each point you fail by. Test willpower to not lose an asset. Um, you know, something, 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 doom. Those are so, like, enemy, cultist enemies that enter play with doom. They're so, like, standard. And then what we do is we throw variations into them. So in the Dream Eaters, you have the version of um, the willpower and agility test to not take damage and uh, horror, where uh, the test is more difficult, but you can commit any icon to it, like that kind of thing. 
um, or the versions in uh, Innsmouth, where if you draw a specific token, it's you automatically fail. Or the ones in Edge of the Earth, where if you draw a Frost token, you take extra whatever damage. Um, so there are some mechanics that we like to keep reusing. And then sometimes it just makes more sense to just use the corset version instead of like recreating it. Um, because they're already there. Like that's that's cards that we don't have to design, that's art that we don't have to commission, that's uh cards that don't have to go into this box that can only hold X amount of cards, you know what I mean? Um, so it's it's all about a steady balance. Like we can't do all new cards because we'll run out of card space and art space. We can't do all old cards because players will send me angry letters. Um, <laughs> so it, yeah, it's all about striking a balance. And if we find that it's like, oh, this card is just way too close to Rotting Remains, and it makes sense narratively for Rotting Remains to be in this scenario, we'll just slap that in there. You know what I mean? Um, am, am, am I getting to see uh, a core set encounter set get reinterpreted in certain ways, like rats suddenly mm. becoming a different thing in the secret name? Yes. Um, but yeah. I mean, like, you know, then there is also the the aspect of theme, which I was a playtester on Edge of the Earth, and I remember trolling Maxine being like, why isn't chilling cold in every scenario? <laughs> it's cold. It's cold. It's cold. <laughs> All cold. I mean, yeah. There's always going to be, there's sometimes there's going to be encounter sets we add only because of theme. And then sometimes there's going to be encounter sets that we, uh, that maybe should have been in there for theme, but we didn't add because there's a mechanical reason why we didn't want it to be in there. Um, a perfect example is in a project I can't talk about specifically, there's an encounter set that makes perfect sense to be in there. And I, I didn't want to include it, or rather, I cut it from the scenario because it ended up being really cumbersome and not working for other reasons. So it's like, it, it's just about remaining flexible and like, uh, keeping all of those tools on hand and making sure that you, you're not like staying too rigid in your design. That's all. It's part of the challenge too. Like I would imagine sometimes there are situations where you want to include like part of an encounter set. Like I know you've done this with like Whippoorwills in the past where you've reprinted mm -hmm. Whippoorwills just to include those cards, but yeah. Um you know, is is there like an in, are there any instances you could think of like oh it'd be nice to like just have rotting remains and not frozen in fear and not, you know, the other whatever encounter cards come in that set. Yeah, I mean the classic example is the Midnight Masks treacheries, the five treacheries from the Midnight Masks where we like we want to use these treacheries, but we don't want to use those locations because it's set in a completely different area. So it just says, take the five locations, take the five treacheries and none of the locations and no actor agenda cards. Um, I think we've also done, have we done uh, other encounter, other similar encounter sets before? Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. I don't remember. But yes, like sometimes, sometimes we, what we've done in the past is just reprint the cards that we want to use. Um, like the Whippoorwills in um, Union and Disillusion, where it's like, oh, it makes sense for Whippoorwills to be in here. Let's just reprint those cards in there because not everyone's going to own Dunwich. Um, but if it's from the core set, yeah, it'd probably be better to just reprint those cards. Or sorry, to just take those cards, even if it's not the full encounter set. It's a little awkward, but like, yeah, I think we did reprint Rotting Remains once. And I remember a lot of people being like, why? That's three cards that could have been something else 
And oh, that was like, in Carcosa, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in um, the Catacombs, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, I think uh, Striking Fear was, I think there was like, sometimes I want to use the voices and the Frozen in Fear, but it doesn't make sense for there to be guts strewn about narratively in like whatever scenario it is. So it's like, ah, oh, man, like I wish that I had broken that out into its own set or something. These Parisians but, don't know how to keep their catacombs clean. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's catacombs. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. not polite to ask a Parisian about their catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have another question from chat here, and it seems like Manastrophic has been rambling off questions all day long. Uh, but he asks a very important question here, which is: uh, it's difficult to tell from the artwork, but uh, what nationality is Lola Hayes? Oh, great arbiter of Arkham lore. Ooh. I don't know. I, I, I think... Oops. Um, hmm. You know, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that one. I, I legitimately just don't know. Is cat fur floating around? someone just say Carcosa? The mystery Carcosa. forever. Carcosa. She's from Carcosa, yep. I think I want to say that she's uh, like European American, like uh, like an American from originally from like, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't want to say anything wrong, so I'm just going to pass on that one. <laughs> I really don't know. I have a question regarding the art. What uh, when you sat down to to put out the revised core set, which I think has attracted a lot of new players to the game, how did you go about deciding which cards you were going to give a, a new look of paint to? That is a great question and very easy for me to answer. I was told. <laughs> um, I did not decide any of those. Uh, our um, Andrew Navarro, who was our like visual director for a long time, and then later on our uh, basically head of development, was like, okay, if we're doing a new core set, I want these, whatever, however many, 13 cards or whatever, to have new art. And I was like, okay. I think the only one that I maybe, I, I think I like added to that list, I think there was like one or two pieces I was like, hey, as long as we're doing new art, can we also get new art for like this card and this card? Um, but I don't remember off the top of my head which ones were his choices and which ones were mine. For sure, the investigators were just like, well, we should do the investigators. Like, because that's going to be a driving point. Like, people are going to want new investigator art. So we did the five investigators. And then I think from there, it was just like the there were certain cards that uh, Andrew just wanted to see new art of. And a lot of the new art that we commissioned were like, hey, while we're getting new art, let's let's feature these five investigators in as many of them as physically possible, right? Um, or just feature investigators specifically. Um, so the new burglary has skids on it. Um, the new scavenging has uh, Agnes on it, I think, mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth. Like, like, so who's to blame for medical texts? That's my bugbear. <laughs> mm -hmm. I I like that card. <laughs> It's 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 tough for me because I I like every I like almost every single art piece that's ever been made for this game, 
So even even the ones that were swapped out, I'm like, oh, I like that one. You know what I mean? Like, they're yeah. <laughs> um, Man, Man from Lang just has a personal uh, grudge against any and all cards that heal damage and or horror, but he has clearly not played with any of the new weaknesses from Edge of the Earth because, man, oh man, it had. If I had had some healing in my game, I could have actually moved more than one location the entire game, which would have been Good. which would have been nice. So, you know, I I do think that there is certainly some design space to make healing more important than soaking, because I do find that that's often a lot of people's go to. It's just play soak; it's better than healing. But you know, I think that there is some new d cards in in the card pool that sort of make you question that a little bit. That was 100% the intent. So, yay. Well, I haven't had I haven't had the pleasure of having my my legs or arms broken yet. So, uh maybe my uh my perspective on healing will change once that's happened a couple of times. Leg injury is rough because Yeah, leg injury is tough. Because it's it's often like you're evading and moving in the same turn and you can't and it just it puts you into this perpetual cycle of, oh, I guess I'm just going to evade and stay here and not move ever. Especially if you're playing solo. Yep. If you're playing multiplayer, someone else can heal you. It's not that bad. But like, yeah, solo, bring some healing. One of, one of my goals has always been to create weaknesses that make you consider things when you're updating your deck, right? Where it's like, Oh, this is actually going to change the direction I take this deck in, in like maybe a very minor way. And for those, it's very obvious. It's like every class has something that heals. So you just slap that in there and just, you know, hope that you can draw it in time <laughs> to uh, prevent that from happening. We have a question from Robin9126 for the whole panel. So uh, we'll start with Duke. Apart from the 1920s, what's your favorite era for setting Lovecraftian horror? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, there was a campaign that I ran where I, in the Call of Cthulhu system, um, where I put the color out of space into um, a small town in Maine in the 1950s. And I thought it was really fun to like play into that uh, Cold War like panic um, of that era. And I think it really fits sort of the paranoia and uh fear of the unknown that's really inherent in a lot of lovecraftian horror so yeah 50s where everyone's like oh golly gee whiz and but everything's <laughs> terrifying that's fun to me is that is that what the 50s is golly whiz i gotta go down to the soda shop Willikers. oh what's that tentacle <laughs> i kind of it almost has like a, a lovecraft country vibe to it in a way <laughs> Yeah. Willy Curse. <laughs> <laughs> Willy Curse. Oh, that's amazing. That's a, that's I think, a really about you, Maxine. Mm, I think for me, I, I I think modern, like present day, I think that's my favorite. Um, just because it's so much easier to connect to the characters and really put yourself in their place and like envision it happening to you. Um, whereas with like anything, especially anything before the 1900s, it gets to be tough for me to envision uh, to me for me to like get into character, right? It's like if it's like the 1890s or like the early 1800s or 
golden age of sailing or something like that. Like it's all cool. I still want to play it, but I find it difficult to connect to that, that setting. Cause it's like, I've never lived in the 18. I don't know. Um, but when it's a modern era, uh, game, especially like a horror video game, I especially love that. Um, I grew up on Silent Hill, Resident Evil, uh, Clock Tower, like you mentioned, um, Haunting Grounds, like all those games. Um, so that's that's my jam. What about you, Man from Lang? <laughs> yeah, the question was for the whole panel, so Man from Lang. Oh, about when when to set to to set Lovecraftian horror. Mm. Uh, I'll never forget when I I played at a, a convention back in the uh, man. It was the late 1980s, and uh, they set the uh, they had two or three tables of call of cthulhu playing and each was they were all set you were uh, military uh units in world war ii or world war one or world no was it world it was world war ii so they had all the tables were set as military units in world war ii and you basically all played the same scenario and then at the end everybody got together and it was a, a mass battle against uh, one mythos creature that everybody sort of ran into at the end so you had and i think we had like they just threw the threw the uh the barn door open to everything so people had rocket launchers and tanks and and uh everybody still died so (laughs) i know my friend my friends and i were talking about that one for for years after as as one of the highlights of our of our young gaming careers at the time Sounds like Mark Harrigan's backstory. Just yeah, 20 exactly. years in the future. <laughs> exactly. So, quick Maxine. question about uh, Maxine. Are you a modern Cthulhu, or are you more of like a government conspiracy Delta Green kind of modern day? Either one. Um, I think, like, I think my favorite, uh, my favorite horror settings or games are the ones where you're just an ordinary person. Um, and then you get thrust into an extraordinary situation. Um, so like Resident Evil, for example, that's like my classic go-to horror game that I love. Um, Delta Green though, like that, that sort of government conspiracy thing with like a secret paranormal agency. I love that too. Like, uh, I love the SCP foundation, like stories. Um, I love like found footage paranormal stuff like uh, like slender man style things like urban legends um i love uh there's a game on steam called world of horror that's like arkham horror-esque set in uh, japan and you play as like high school uh aged japanese kids going through like uh japanese urban legends and like yokai and stuff and it's so cool yeah like, like it's the closest thing to a Junji Ito-esque yes. inspired yes. horror game. Yes. Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, all of those. Um, yeah. That's interesting because I'm always like curious to see whether or not people prefer one or the other as far as like those two modern day settings because I feel like they're very different, even though people oh, yeah. people don't think they are, but they're very different in tone. I think. Well, when uh, you get to like the like SCP Foundation and uh, Delta Green. There's a there's an element of anachronism there that's intentional. That's there. That's like 
oh, like, it's a secret government agency, so they have, like, futuristic stuff that you couldn't even, like, believe. Um, it's, it's almost like it's 20 or so years in the future, right, in terms of, like, what kind of tech level exists and stuff like that. Um, whereas, and, and even, like, Resident Evil is like that, too, and, like, the evil within, for sure, is like that. Um, so, and that's cool. I love all that. Don't get me wrong. But I think my favorite is the games like Silent Hill, where it's just you with a gun and that thing, <laughs> you know, like walking through an apartment building and everything's messed up. Like, that's awesome. And yes, I chose apartment building because Silent Hill 4 is one of my favorites. I mean, Silent Hill is <laughs> just a great franchise in general, so. It really is. Well, except for the new stuff that Konami, well, we won't talk yeah. about that, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, Vase, what about you? What's your favorite setting for Lovecraftian horror? Well, I think you know the answer. I'm a huge Stealthy Green fan, so it's modern day, modern day and government conspiracy type. I think the use of technology, when I first heard of Delta Green, I'm like, how could that possibly work? Like, it seems like it'd be too um, easy or like uh, the word would get out too, too quickly. Um, but it actually throws a curveball into into the entire thing that that adds just an interesting layer to it. So I really appreciate that, and I do like that whole trying to keep a lid on it just to keep everybody safe, you know, that, that whole thing. So I really enjoy it. Uh, what about you, Nate? I'm still in a toss-up, man. Delta Green is easily one of my favorites. I've just had so many great moments playing that game and speaking with Dennis and Shane individually, like. I know a lot of the kind of the inner workings of what's going on with Delta Green. So, like, I do admittedly have a bias for Delta Green, but I've been really enjoying playing Weird West lately. I've been playing a basically like a anime inspired JoJo's adventure through the Weird West with my group, and it's been amazing. I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> one of my characters amazing. is like one of the richest people in the world. <laughs> so his his parents are like steel manufacturers who helped like manufacture the the western union railroad and all that stuff so nice it's, it's been a lot of fun that's cool and i think we have a we have time for a couple more questions here so let me uh just yeah we started late let me put my head in here Start um, your whole schedule off you know we haven't <laughs> talked about edge of the earth that much um so I guess I just kind of leave this as an open-ended question. Is there anything about Edge of the Earth that you two wanted to to say about it specifically? Um, I mean, yeah, I guess like so mild Edge of the Earth spoilers. So apologies if you haven't played Edge of the Earth and you don't want to hear anything, you can mute me, whatever. Um, but when we were in the lead up to Edge of the Earth being uh being released i remember like one of the big things that i kept mentioning was i hope because i didn't know i honestly did not know how players would react to the expedition team and like whether players would connect to them and because that's what i wanted right i wanted players to connect with these characters really kind of feel like they've gotten to know them so that when if and when they get picked off one by one it's 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 really like it hurts you know what i mean like and you don't want um, you want to protect them. You want them to stay alive because you want to see their stories continue afterwards. Um, and I'm very happy that, from what I understand, like most of the feedback has been 
yes, we've connected to these characters. I, I want to protect them. I've gotten so many messages and memes and stuff of people who are like, like, oh no, like Ellsworth was the first person to die in my campaign. Like, no, I have to go back and replay it. Um, I'm like, yeah, someone in chat right now is Edge of the Earth is the first time a board game made me tear up, someone says. And I'm like, hell yeah. That's, that, that means so much to me because that was like the whole point, right? Like that was like, my entire goal with the campaign beyond the mechanics and the fun gameplay was uh, creating story moments that I, I think are maybe more impactful than they've ever been in Arkham in the past. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Walker of Tales has a great message in chat. I had a beautiful experience where Dyer died in the plane crash. The single perfect person to die from a horror story perspective. That's and so yeah, true. Hundred percent like, true. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad that 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 connection is real and that um, players love these characters because that was like basically my number one goal with the campaign. My number two goal being uh, make a campaign that's truly variable length and that can play anywhere between four and ten scenarios. So, yeah, Dr. Kinsler, Ramallah's body in the plane crash. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I like the the reverse one is even more touching to me, but yes. What about you, Duke? You uh you did quite a bit of playtesting for this campaign, is that correct? Yeah. Um. Actually, my initial speaking to what we've just been talking about, my initial reaction when it was like, "Wait, anyone can die in the plane crash," was <laughs> like, "Is that going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Are the players going to be okay?" Um. <laughs> but yeah, it creates those moments. Like I I ended up coming around and really liking how it created this really potentially emotional experience. Um, and it also makes it so that it, it enforces that feeling that like no one is safe, like no one, which is a good horror film or horror story uh, idea. Um, yeah. It, you're never safe. Um, yeah. One of my favorite video games of all time is Danganronpa and uh, Danganronpa spoilers, everyone mild. But, like, you are introduced to this enormous cast of characters, right? This huge cast of characters. And you spend, like, a solid hour or two getting to know all of them, what their talents are, what their hopes are, what their dreams are, why they're fun. And you, you kind of want them all to survive. And then, like, immediately someone dies. Like, almost immediately after that, like, introductory period. And I was like, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Because right off the bat, and not only not only does someone die, but the first loading screen, the very first loading screen of the game says um, like something like 12 students remaining. And you're like, oh, shit. D what? Like remaining? What does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, um, so I wanted to give that same sensation of like, like, here you go. Nine characters. And I think my favorite bit of text in the entire campaign is the game text that tells you to pull out the set and read through them one at a time, and then tells you, hey, this is your expedition team. Um, you know, when they take damage and, and horror, like, record that in the campaign log. If they die, cross, no, when they die, cross them off one by one. Just to, like, immediately get you into the mindset, like, they are not gonna survive. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. My daughter has a Danganronpa bed cover. Hell yeah. 
That must have been hard to to balance between like trying to make them feel special and not make them feel disposable in yes. that regard. You know, because yeah, it's like my... I could imagine a lot of players being like, "Oh, well, if they're gonna die anyway, then I'm just gonna let them die." But I would imagine you kind of don't want to harbor that. You you want the players to feel connected to these characters. Yeah, and it was tough to balancing it in such a way that the characters feel really useful. Like you want to bring them with you because they feel really useful, but they're not so ridiculously overpowered that if they start dying off very, very quickly, um, it's a snowball effect where now you're losing every single scenario because you have fewer of them to choose from or whatever. Um, and uh, so that was that was a tricky uh, point of like consideration during playtesting for sure. And a question for the both of you: which which of the allies is your favorite? Oof. Um, that's a tough one. I think I really like. Um, oh god. I think my favorite is Elia. Um, Elia is probably the one with the most, uh, with the most interesting and cool, like coolest backstory, I think. Um, and I won't, I won't delve into it too far because that's a bit of a more heavy spoiler. If you want to play, definitely play through it, uh, play through Fatal Mirage. Um, but he's got a really cool backstory and I think he has my favorite and the most tragic epilogue out of all of the characters by far. actually going to also say Elia. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's great. Mm-hmm. Well, we but, can uh, uh, ask the Miskatonic University Radio podcast whether their favorite uh, crew member is also Elia because they have just donated $300 matching uh, the Mythos Busters and Great Old Ones Gaming. Their oh, message to all of wow. you is... Thank you. Yeah, and their message to all of you is thanks to Great Old Ones Gaming for putting on Horrors Without Borders. And thanks to everyone attending. And our continuing thanks to all the designers, writers, playtesters, and community that make this game great. So, warm thanks from all of them. So, with that, that puts our, that puts our um, accumulated donations at over 2,500. We have unlocked Ooh. the next prize tier. Damn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. When we have a moment, Nate will uh, tell us all about what's in that prize tier right now. Oh, absolutely. So we have a copy of the Dream Eaters Deluxe Expansion, which I'm sure is a favorite among many players in the community. It's, it's my favorite. Ew, there you go. Well, it's Maxine's favorite, so that's the most important favorite. We also have a copy of Light in the Fog, which is fitting, since uh, the designer of that scenario is right here. And then we also have a copy of the Edge of the Earth Investigator Expansion, which we will be giving away to one lucky winner as well. And we have a couple of copies of starter decks. We have a Jacqueline Fine and a Nathaniel Cho starter deck, the perfect after-holiday stocking stuffer. That's right. So uh, yeah, this is this is uh, this is all great news. So um, let's keep pushing. I think uh, five thousand is within reach tonight, folks. Carry on. So Vase, I, I saw that you had posted a question in chat. That seems like a pretty good question to uh to end this uh, lovely conversation on. So why don't yeah. you go ahead and uh and it's it's on topic for uh, Edge of the Earth. Uh, this is from friend of the show Solar J. 
Do you think albino penguins have an ulterior motive? And if so, is it as sinister as the whippoorwill's joy in watching us all die? <laughs> um, I like to think of the albino penguins as just being like physical hurdles. You're just like, can you get out of the? I'm trying to get. Pe- Stop it! Stop! You're in my way. Just move. Just move out of the way. And and that's it. They are. I think they're like just like this brainless lump of meat in front of you. Um, I don't think they're sinister at all. I think they're pretty adorable, actually. <laughs> brainless lump of meat. I'm pretty sure my wife called me that one time. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no that never happened. <laughs> I mean, I mean probably sort of will like now, a, but there's sort of like a microcosm of Lovecraftian cosmic horror, though, right? They're indifferent to whether or not you live or die. They just stare at you, yeah, just unmoving, uh, you know, inscrutable. <laughs> well, you don't know what they it. want. <laughs> they want food, but like you're not the food. They're what just if like you were a herring. And yeah, yeah. Would they be like a Lovecraftian elder god in your <laughs> your view if you were a herring? Yes. Yes. Return to the albino penguin when. (laughs) I'm pretty sure there's some great recipes for albino penguin. I'll have to bust those out at some point. Mm. Can I, before we go, can I answer but not answer Infinite Nutshell's question? Sure, by all means. Absolutely. Do you want to read it? Absolutely, I do. Uh, let me find it here. Oh my god, it got lost in chat. Uh, I've got it. Is it the? I've got it here. If you, is it the? Now that we have the EU. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Okay, I'll I'll read it here. So now that we have EOE out and presumably de- development on the next thing is well underway, would you care to talk about the new one box campaign format and what kinds of new things it lets you do? <laughs> So obviously, I can't talk about specifics. Uh, I will say that, as you know, or as you might not know, we work very far ahead. Uh, Very far ahead. And uh, the stuff that's coming out after the edge of the earth is by far, far and away, easily, the most ambitious stuff we've ever done and the most difficult content we've ever had to produce. Um, and it's not even, it's by a factor of like 10. Um, but I'm really excited. I can't really tell you anything more. All I'm going to say is that it makes me so happy. (laughs) So, so happy. (laughs) So I'm really excited. (laughs) No, it doesn't have 10 10 times the cards in it. No, 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 stop it. No. (laughs) That's how rumors start. I just, the, the effort, the effort. Got ten times the cards, a hundred amount of this. That, that'll take Matastrophic Nate and I like <laughs> five years. <laughs> like, 300, that, 300 videos in five years. It's just like, and to wrap up the final, the final cards <laughs> in this expansion, which was released five years ago. <laughs> here we have card card Z. Card number three thousand four hundred. What, what, what do we think about card Z? <laughs> what what was card A again? <laughs> and then somebody will inevitably in the comments say, "Oh, you missed the interaction with card K. How could you possibly forget that?" No, there was definitely a moment like many months ago, like many months ago, where I remember people being like, 
what's the hardest content you've ever had to make? Like, what was the most difficult and time consuming? And I remember being like, oh, the stuff that's coming out after Innsmouth, for sure, referencing Edge of the Earth. Uh, like, oh, that was by far the toughest content I've ever had to make. And at the time, that was true because it was like we were working from home for the first time. COVID was just hitting. It was a big deal. It was a big change for me. I was also going through a lot of personal stuff. It was like by far the hardest content I've ever had to produce. The the repackaged like, yeah, box people saying like, I remember you saying that. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> Because the stuff that comes out after Edge of the Earth was so much harder. <laughs> but I think it's going to be worth it. I'm really excited. So, yes, stay tuned. <laughs> well, damn. Not to hype that up or anything. That's what I'm here for. Marketing would be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is exciting news, though. I think you're, you say you're excited. I think uh, everyone else is even more excited. Yeah, just, 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 just be patient. Just be patient. Bear with me. This is going to take a while. You've got Edge of the Earth to play through. Like, yeah. We do, yeah. yeah. February. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What? It's coming out in February. No, no, no. It's coming. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I'll stick my cat on you. She will attack you. <laughs> Well, I think, I think Solar J asks the perfect ending question for this, and he asks, is there anything that we should read to get us in the mood for the next cycle? Oh, I can't. I can't answer that. I can't answer that. That's is, too... That's is that too, obvious? Too revealing. I can't answer that. But when it's announced, I will answer it. Fair enough. Can't complain with I that. I will remain eerily silent. <laughs> but if you want to read something that's totally unrelated to the next cycle that is still really good and fun and like probably pretty good um you should read the key in the crescent uh a novel by mj newman shameless plug where can uh where can people buy that shameless plug where 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 indeed well you can find it on my personal website www.bewaretheblackcat.com um, you can also find it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and other digital distribution wherever books are sold. Very yes, thank nice. you, Madison. <laughs> As like six people are frantically typing in the URL into chat, <laughs> which I should well, be that, doing. But that's yeah. what I'm here: hype yeah. and announcements. <laughs> <laughs> and what what about you, Duke? If people want to follow you and check out more of what you do, is you have any social media or anything like that? Yeah, my website is josiahduke.com, um, and you can find me on social media as Josiah Duke, so feel free to give me a look. Well, very cool. Well, it's been a pleasure having both of you on the show. I really appreciate you both taking the time to uh, to chat with the fans and just, you know, help us raise money for a great cause of Doctors Without Borders, you know. It's always, always great having you both on the show. Um, Maxine, you've been on the show numerous times, and uh, Duke, it's been your first time, but I'm sure we'll see you on again. It would be great to have you. Um, yeah. Do my fellow co-hosts have any uh, anything else to say? No, I just thank uh, you both as well. Very yeah. gracious of you guys to join us today. Yeah, thank you very much. I I uh, just wanted to quickly revisit one of the topics we mentioned earlier was that uh, the swarm cards. I had to go back to my notes to check, but. 
the uh, the number of spiders I had on the table with my chaos gym yeah. run was seventeen. Oh no! <laughs> and I still won. So that's too many spiders. It was as, a, as a as a someone who's arachnophobic, that's too many spiders. <laughs> yeah. So you account for seventeen. Most of my deck being on the table in one way or another. But uh, yeah, thanks for uh, for joining us for this uh, this fundraiser. It's always thank a pleasure. It is, yeah, thank you. Uh, it is my pleasure. Uh, well, I, I think with that we're uh, we're going to take a quick short break here. I'm sure some of us need to to step out and stretch our legs, maybe grab some water, take a bathroom break. But when we come back, we're going to be doing some just some general chatting for a little bit, and then we'll have a uh, Krabby Terror off with his uh, Investigator Games episode. Yeah. So stay tuned, and we will be back shortly. 